0: This episode is brought to you by the Weekend University's Day on Human Nature online conference, taking place on Sunday, December 19th, 2021. This will be a full day of interactive talks with leading psychologists, professors, and neuroscientists exploring the hidden forces that drive human behavior. In the first talk, Dr. Graham Music will discuss the surprising links between attachment patterns, neurobiology, and altruism, and how you can use these insights to create more well-being in day-to-day life. The second lecture from Cambridge neuroscientist Dr. Hannah Critchlow will explore what the latest neuroscience research reveals about how much free will we really have and what you can do to consciously shape a better future both for yourself and the wider world. And the final talk will be from Dr. Nancy Segal who will speak on how the latest research in twin studies might finally help us resolve the nature versus nurture debate. By attending live, you can interact with world-class speakers and leading academics in real-time, get your questions answered in the Q&A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference, and get lifetime access to the recordings and all available materials from the sessions. Additionally, the weekend university guarantees an excellent learning experience. Therefore, if you attend and aren't fully satisfied with your experience, you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash human-nature-2021. That's bit.ly forward slash human-nature-2021 and use the discount code POD when registering. That's POD when registering, all one word. You can also find the link and the discount code in the show notes for this episode. So Dr. Newberg is a neuroscientist, author, professor, and the research director in the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. He studies how brain function is associated with various mental states, and is a pioneer in the neurological study of religious and spiritual experiences, a field known as neuroethology. Dr. Newberg's research has included brain scans of people in prayer, meditation, rituals, and trance states, as well as surveys of people's spiritual experiences and attitudes. He has also evaluated the relationship between religious or spiritual phenomena and health, and the effect of meditation on memory. He believes that it's important to keep science rigorous and religion religious. Some of his books include How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, The Metaphysical Mind, and and Words Can Change Your Brain. You can learn more about Dr. Newberg's work at www.andrewnewberg.com. So really excited about this final talk. And Dr. Newberg, whenever you're ready, we'll just get started.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much and uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm excited to be able to share with you some of the research I've been engaged with over the last, really, 25 or 30 years. I don't feel that old, but uh, I guess I am. And, uh, but it's been, it's been a lot of uh, very exciting for me. Uh, it's some, an area, as you will see, I'm very passionate about. And hopefully, uh, I can make all of you uh, passionate about these same kinds of topics. Uh, so the title of my talk is Neuroscience, Spiritual Experiences, and Self-Transformation, uh, it, it grows a little bit out of the work that I did on the topic of enlightenment or awakening. And in fact, you know, when we start to think about these kinds of questions and these kinds of topics, uh, what I want people to realize is that there are a lot of, you know, we have to sort of start with what the experiences are. As you as you heard in my introduction, um, I believe it's really essential to keep science rigorous, meaning that we do good science, but you need to keep the religion religious, the spiritual, spiritual, meaning that you have to understand what people are really feeling and thinking about. Because if, if we don't understand the subjective qualities of these experiences, then whatever we can say is going on in the brain or in the body, um, it, it doesn't really have any meaning unless you can connect the two. So uh, a lot of my research has been doing brain scans, but a lot of it has been doing a variety of different surveys and trying to understand what people really feel and think about when they say I feel spiritual or I feel like I have had a spiritual or a mystical experience or an enlightenment experience. And in fact, uh, as this particular as this first slide shows, um, the notion of enlightenment um, has many different track I could have put the any of these words as the first word uh, as the title word on the slide things like knowledge, wisdom, awakening, uh, transformation, self-realization, holiness, pure consciousness. Um, So all of these things uh, are are part or could be a part of a person's experience of enlightenment. But we need to go further. We need to really understand what these different terms mean. And then ultimately, we need to think about how they link up to what's going on in our brains so that we can try to best understand them. And as you also heard in the introduction, uh, this really, to me, fills in a field called neurotheology which is looking to find the relationship between our spiritual cells and our biological cells, what's going on in our brain, as well as what is going on uh, in uh, in terms of our own experiences and our own sense of spirituality. Now, uh, I wanna take a little step back and talk about this concept of enlightenment uh, in particular, and uh, which really, again, has a lot to do with transformation um, And and I think what, what I'm gonna talk about now over the next few minutes about what enlightenment is, can really apply to any of these kinds of terms because basically there are sort of the small experiences, the small transformational experiences, and then there are the big ones. So when we talk about, for example, enlightenment, we talked about uh, in our book, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, the differentiation between the big E enlightenment experiences and the little e enlightenment experiences. And the little e experiences are basically defined um, by the term itself. Basically, that it is shedding some light on our ignorance of a particular part of our lives, a particular question, a particular issue. Uh, it brings us out of the darkness. And part of why I think these experiences are helpful for all of us is that we've all had them. So, you know, not all of us have, have struck the big, you know, Buddha type of enlightenment, but uh, almost all of us have had these little aha moments in our lives. There are, things where we, you know, struggling with a problem at work or a problem with a relationship or, you know, what to do with our lives or something like that. And we, we work on it. We try to figure out an answer to a problem. And then suddenly, you know, we're kind of struck with some little uh, insight into what to do. So it helps us to solve this particular problem. It helps us to, to figure out a, a, a new way of thinking about a particular thing that we are dealing with. But that is different than the bigger experiences, the big E experiences. Um, In those kinds of really big transformational experiences, it's not just the solution to one problem, but it's like the solution to all problems. Our entire worldview is transformed. Our values, our morals, our sense of spirituality, our sense of self, um, you know, everything is just rewritten in our own brains and in our spirit, our soul, whatever, whatever terms you want to ultimately use for that. Uh, many people feel that this is the highest experience an individual can attain. And of course there are examples of such experiences really in, in every culture, in every tradition and, and throughout time. So to me, you know, as a neuroscientist now coming at this question, it is important for for me to say, well, gee, you know, this is something that seems to be a universal quality and perhaps we can try to understand it more and understand how that universal quality is attached to the universal elements of the human brain. So when we think about these kinds of transformational enlightenment experiences around the world, um, you know, the the most common ones that people think of are uh, basically derived out of the Eastern philosophies. So uh, Eastern philosophies typically define enlightenment as the highest level of consciousness a person can attain. It's a little bit different in each tradition. For example, in Hinduism, uh, consciousness is seen as the essence from which the universe emerged. So enlightenment really means that you become one with this fundamental reality. Uh, That's a little different than Taoism, for example, in which um, enlightenment refers to the principal concept of Taoism, which is the way, the the, kind of the natural flow of life, the universe. Um, And so when you become in harmony with this, overall approach this overall way of being then this is exactly what we see you know this is what people call enlightenment in Buddhism enlightenment is a bit more personal it's brought about through meditation and uh, and a whole process of self-reflection of course this can take different uh different ways of doing it different perspectives in Zen Buddhism for example um, typically it has to do with realizing that there's this kind of that there's the illusion of the mind the illusion of our everyday reality and we come we kind of confront that and realize that uh, all of that is is an illusion if you will um, and that there's a new way of thinking about things. So these are a little you know very brief uh, descriptions obviously that you could spend uh, an entire series of lectures on any one of these topics but just to give a perspective of, of what we're talking about. Now in the monotheistic traditions, um, in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, uh, there are also a notion of enlightenment. Now, typically they don't talk about enlightenment as a term. Um, if you go into the, into the Judeo-Christian Bible, um, in the word is, it, there is some uh, use of the word uh, and, and in general it kind of means what we're talking about, but uh, there is certainly this notion, especially in the mystical traditions of uh, each of these monotheistic traditions, Um, A a very similar kind of concept to what we saw in the Buddhist and Hindu uh, traditions. So in Judaism, for example, Kabbalistic teachings basically strive to achieve a mystical union with God. That is what the enlightenment kind of experience is. That's what the the goal of what you're striving for is. Uh, In uh, Sufism, which is the mystical sect of uh, Islam, we see also a similar kind of concept of mystical union with God uh, through the Quranic teachings and ultimately a surrender to God. So there is that little distinction here of not just becoming one with God, but kind of surrendering to God. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, a little bit later because there are some interesting differences in terms of how people understand those kinds of concepts. In Christianity, again, somewhat similar in terms of becoming one with God, uh, a sense of unknowing, uh, so to speak, and being in God's presence. It's a little bit more personal uh, in some regards, but Uh, Again, there's a lot of overlap between each of these kinds of um, traditions. And again, the term enlightenment is not typically used, but these kinds of mystical unions uh, are certainly described. And there is this sense that there is some state that one gets to, which is the ultimate state that one can achieve. Now, interestingly, as we were studying enlightenment, um, of course, we also came across the age of enlightenment in the uh, 1700s where uh interestingly it took enlightenment in an entirely different direction it basically said we have to get away from religion and spirituality and we have to move towards rationality scientific method and so forth um and so uh, to us this was fascinating because it was still talking about the notion of awakening uh of getting to some new way of looking at the world transforming the self but it it goes in a whole different direction it's non-spiritual Um, It it was defined not as becoming religious or spiritual, but as a freedom from religiousness and spirituality. Uh, Kant, for example, defined it as being the the emancipation of human consciousness from a state of ignorance. It was believed that religion and spirituality were sort of these more primitive perspectives on things and the scientific rational methods were what we needed to use going forwards. But again, from, from a brain perspective, it was still this notion of achieving some new way of thinking about things, of looking at the world from a different perspective. So that that radical shift is what we're talking about when we talk about these kinds of experiences. So we've, we've, you know, now we've talked a little bit about what enlightenment and these kinds of self-transforming experiences are about, um, but exactly where do they begin, you know, can we look at some aspect of this going on in the brain itself? So this is the, uh, beginning of the next part of what we're going to be talking about. And I want to make sure that everyone is at least on um, uh, on the same page, at least as far as understanding the brain, because we're going to be referring to a number of these areas a little bit later on. For example, um, so this is a, an image of the brain, uh, a figure of the sort of the side view of the brain, is like if you're looking from the side of a person. And if you look towards the left of the slide, um, the large area is the frontal lobe. And I've sometimes referred to this as an attention area. This is an area that does a lot of different things as do all areas of the brain. But in particular, it's helpful for focusing attention, for helping people to concentrate. And, uh, and we'll see how this plays out when we talk about different practices like meditation or prayer. The temporal lobe along the side of the brain is very involved in both visual processing, that's at the lower uh, part of the temporal lobe, And then at the junction of the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe, the back part of the brain, is what I sometimes refer to as a verbal conceptual area. So this is where we have our language abilities, a lot of our rational abilities, causality seems to be in this area, mathematics. Um, And so... You know, when you do start to think about these different terms of what wisdom, enlightenment, so all these different language terms that we're using, it's this part of the brain, this part of the temporal lobe, and really the junction of the temporal and the parietal lobe, uh, where we start to see these uh, processes taking place. Uh, And then we get to the parietal lobe, which is more in the back of the brain. Uh, This is an area that takes a lot of our sensory information, and using that sensory information helps us to establish our sense of self. So um, that helps us to just kind of navigate ourselves through the world. But as we will see a little bit later, when we look at some of the brain scans, this is when we talk about becoming one, when we talk about uh, losing the sense of self, this is part of the areas of the brain that seem to become involved in that. Uh, And then uh, a little bit deeper inside the brain, particularly in the temporal lobes, we have the limbic system. And the limbic system, which many of you uh, may have heard of, uh, is involved primarily in emotional processing uh areas particularly like the amygdala and the hippocampus uh, are involved in our emotional responses to the to the world identifying things that are particularly important either good or bad um and then also for writing that information into our memory and that, that makes a lot of sense actually you want to remember the things that are emotionally salient to you and you, you can kind of forget about a lot of the other things that happen in your regular day but if something really important happens that's what you want to remember And you can even see some other areas of the brain here, like the cingulate cortex, which is kind of between the limbic system and the higher parts of the brain that we were just talking about. So that's what helps to connect our emotions and our thoughts. And that's a very important aspect of enlightenment experiences, philosophy, science, you know, everything that we do and think about. The emotions and our rationality all kind of work together to help us figure out what's going on in the world. So, now to get a little bit more specific about the aspects of these experiences and how they relate ultimately to the brain, uh, I'd like to tell you a little bit about a survey that we ran. Um, again, you know, I, I'm bouncing back and forth a little bit between understanding the experiences on one hand and understanding what's going on in the brain on the other hand. So when we look at the experiences themselves, um, we really you know after we had done scans on about 100 150 individuals doing all different kinds of practices uh, we realized that we needed to do uh, we needed to get a little bit more of a handle of what these experiences were really like uh, and not just i you know I, I felt one with god but what were the emotions what were the thoughts what were the feelings what were the experiences like so we ran an online survey where we asked people to describe their most intense spiritual experiences and we received uh, about two thousand responses to all of this over a period of about five or six years. Uh, we got all kinds of demographic information, religious information, and we also uh, had them fill out a whole bunch of questionnaires about their religiosity and different ways that they thought about the world. Uh, and we got narrative descriptions of these experiences. So we have, you know, about two thousand people who said, who, who, you know, in the little word box. Told us exactly what they felt, and it was you know fascinating to me as someone who's been looking at this for many many years, but really helps us to understand now how we can start to tie the areas of the brain that we were just talking about into what's going on with these experiences. So uh, I want to show you a little bit of the results of that. We published this uh, information in several different articles. Uh, this is a, a, just a fun word cloud where we took all of the descriptions, and then you you know you ask it to uh create this word cloud of the most used words during these uh descriptions so you can see um, relatively quickly that things like reality certainly experience because we were asking about their enlightenment or their spiritual experiences um, uh, uh, notions of god spirituality life feelings and then you know you get more and more detail all the way back but what was fascinating about this ultimately was that when we actually did what's called a content analysis to look at the words and how they were used, um, while we could start to figure out that there were certain universal elements to these experiences, there was such an incredible diversity of them as well. No two were alike. And um, and I think that's really important for us to understand that while we can try to say, well, a sense of oneness, or we're going to talk about the core elements in just a few moments, um, everybody's experience seems to have a uniqueness to them. And and I think that that's an important takeaway message. In fact, it's a larger takeaway message of of the whole field of neurotheology, which is that we recognize that everyone seems to have a slightly different experience about their religious or spiritual attitudes. And as I always like to say, if there are seven and a half billion people in the world, there's seven and a half billion religions. And uh, and, and honestly, I mean, even when you look at uh, people who don't have a religious or spiritual background, who consider themselves atheists, Within atheists, there's lots of different ways of looking at that, all the way from those who just don't believe in God to those who don't believe in anything beyond what is just the material world and all different degrees and variations in between. So when we did look at all of these descriptions, uh, as I mentioned, and we look at how different words were used and and we could group certain words together. So, for example, we might, in the term unity, include things like oneness, connectedness, wholeness, um, uh, you know interwo- you know interwovenness. So all of these words become a sense of unity. And we realized that there were five main core components of these kinds of intense enlightenment experiences. Uh, and I'm going to expand on each of these, but essentially they were a sense of intensity, a sense of clarity, a sense of unity, a sense of surrender, and a sense of permanence or transformative permanence, I should say. So what do I mean by each of these? I wanna I want spend a little bit more time um, growing these out and talking about them. Well, when it comes to intensity, what we're talking about is, is that these are the most intense experiences that anyone has ever had. Uh, for the individual, they describe it in such a way, you know, it, it's the most whatever. Uh, it could be the most powerful feeling, the most powerful sense of love, the most powerful uh, light, uh, whatever it is. And, and here's an interesting example, uh, one of my favorite examples, Uh, was a 43 year old male who said, I as an unnameable but individual being was traveling down an infinite roller coaster like waves of pure white ecstatic light. The ecstasy was overwhelming and rose and fell in intensity with the waves of light. The light path seemed infinitely long in both directions. The sense of the being and the light was infinitely more real, and that that was his capitalizations, not mine, <laughs> um, than anything I had ever experienced. So, you know, here's just a wonderful example of the intensity of the experience. So many words in here are about intensity, infinite, ecstatic, pure, overwhelming, um, you know, uh, infinitely more real than anything experienced. And that's part of what really allows these, ex- you know, tells people that these experiences are so important. Um, They are the most intense experiences, and that intensity is what identifies them as being transformative and as being spiritual. Uh, However the person identifies it, um, it's the intensity of it is one of the key elements of that experience. Now, where does intensity occur? Well, we've already talked about this a little bit. Oh, wait. Um... Uh, well, I apologize. This I'm going to have to just sort of talk, talk you through this one because this is usually a um, a scan that kind of morphs from the baseline to the uh, to the actual meditation scan. Um, but uh, hopefully, you can make this out. Uh, so this is a spect scan, um, and this is what we've used for a lot of our brain scan studies. Uh, the colors themselves represent the activity in the brain with the red colors representing the most activity followed by the yellow, the blue, and the black. And what we do is these scans usually are done by injecting people with a little bit of a radioactive tracer that follows blood flow as it gets into the brain. And it works well because the more blood flow a particular part of the brain gets, the more it's being used. So if you're solving a math problem um, and you're using your mathematical areas of the brain, then those would be the areas that would get more blood flow so that they could do that processing. And then when you finish solving the math problem, they settle back down to the kind of baseline level of activity. So we always have some kind of baseline scan, and then we have a scan you know, usually during some state, some kind of practice. And uh, where you're uh, looking at this particular scan where the arrow is pointing, you can see this kind of large blob of red activity. Now, I, I apologize because I guess I didn't realize that we wouldn't be able to do this kind of merge from one uh, image to the next on the same slide. But, um, but if you look at the other side of the scan in the same area, that's what the baseline looked like. Um, it was mostly just kind of yellows and maybe a little bit of red. But when the person now is deeply engaged in meditation or prayer, they activate this area of the brain. And this is the limbic system. Uh, this is in that middle part of the temporal lobe. So this is part of your amygdala and your hippocampus. And as you remember, this is the these are the areas that are involved in emotional, excuse me, emotional responses. And so we expect there to be this very strong emotional change in the brain. And that's part of what signifies this experience as being a very powerful, very intense experience. So this scan helps to demonstrate for us that this limbic system is part of what helps the person feel this powerful sense of intensity as the result of this experience. The other an, another core component of these experiences is, is a sense of clarity. Uh, for me, the best way I think about this is, you know, for the person, um, they they get it. You know, they just suddenly get the world for the first time ever. Maybe uh, they understand the way the world works. They understand what their what their path is in life, what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed to be, how they're supposed to act. Uh, they understand if there's a god, if there isn't a god, whatever they've understood, they now get it, and uh, it is a sense of clarity. You know, it, and that, that is very much what enlightenment itself means. But any of these transformational experiences, it is that the person finally understands the world and themselves in a way that they never have before. So here is an interesting description of this uh, from a 37-year-old female scientist, uh, as she described herself. And she said this about her experience. She said, everything in life seemed to click. I had this clarity, and it was as if I was looking at life from the inside out. Despite my trepidation, this experience seemed to satisfy my proof-oriented mentality with the concept of intuition. It was almost as if my intuition from somewhere deeper had offered some sort of direct experience that offered a proof. So we see here that we had this scientist who had this incredible spiritual experience. And again, you know, they talk about it in terms of clarity, uh, understanding life from the inside out. Uh, very proof oriented, uh, you know, offering some kind of proof and understanding that never occurred before. So again, you know, now we can talk about well, where in the brain might a sense of clarity come about. So where these arrows are pointing is a very central group of structures called the thalami or the thalamus, and there's a left and a right thalamus. Uh, it turns out that when we look at the brain of people who are non-meditators, who have not had these kinds of experiences, the two sides of the thalamus are relatively equal, so that was the that was the pre-slide that I was about to show. And again, I apologize that you can't see that. But on this slide, you can see that one thalamus, uh, a little bit further away from the arrow, is more red, and then where the arrow is pointing is sort of more more yellow. And so we see this asymmetry in this very central structure called the thalamus. So what, I haven't talked about the thalamus yet. So what does it do? Well, because it's so central it helps many different parts of the brain to connect and communicate with each other. It also brings a lot of our sensory information, particularly from our uh, eyes and ears, uh, up into the brain. So in many ways, the thalamus is essential for helping us to establish our sense of reality. And uh, some people have even argued that the thalamus is the seat of consciousness because the thalamus in particular shuts down when we're under anesthesia, for example. So the thalamus is clearly a very central, very important structure and seems to be different in those people who have very intense experiences. Uh, And uh, and I think, you know, while we haven't proven this yet, uh, I think this might be a very interesting area for us to look at when it comes to a sense of clarity and and that sense of transformation that changes the way and all the different ways in which different parts of our brain connect and communicate with each other. Uh, As, uh, you know, even though we're talking about specific areas of the brain, It is important for all of you to know that um, over the last maybe five or 10 years, uh, a lot of cognitive neuroscience has moved away from the specific, you know, the exploration of specific areas and started talking more and more about networks. And the thalamus is a very central structure for a lot of these networks that allow all these different parts of the brain to connect together to be able to do different things for us. So, this to us is also a very important part of how we start to understand these experiences and specifically this notion of clarity. The feeling of unity. This to us is a very important and very core component of these experiences. Uh, Almost everyone describes a sense of oneness, unity, connectedness with the universe, with God, with universal consciousness. And I think that this is where the parietal lobes start to come in. As I mentioned, the parietal lobes turn on when we establish our sense of self and we take the sensory information to be able to do that. Well, what would happen if that area of the brain started to decrease in activity? What happens if through a practice like meditation, you screen out so much information that the parietal lobes just don't have a lot of information to work on? Well, over time, as the parietal lobes start to shut down, if we normally would have our sense of self by turning on our parietal lobes, then we lose our sense of self. And we we also lose the boundary between ourselves and the rest of the world. So we can feel a oneness with God, uh, with all things, with all of humanity, whatever the particular experience is about, Um, this kind of feeling of unity can be very, very powerful and very uh, important part of these experiences. And then leads to a more um, sort of cognitive approach to understanding the fundamentals of what these experiences are about. So we might understand the concept of God as the unifying force of the universe, Or if we have a notion of, you know, like in Christianity, the Trinity, um, understanding how these individual characteristics of God are still part of a whole. So however a person, whatever tradition a person comes from, this notion of oneness and unity, and most importantly, as part of the experience, feeling connected to that oneness, to becoming one with the universe, seems to involve the parietal lobes and seems to involve those ways in which we experience the world around us. So here is yet another um, spec scan uh, of uh, a person during intense meditation. And again, I don't know the the prior, the pre, but on the pre, the whole brain looks about the same level of redness as you're seeing here. But where the arrow is pointing during the meditation practice, you can see that this part of the parietal lobe now suddenly comes you know, as a lot more in the yellows and just a little bit of red. It's certainly very asymmetric compared to what you see on the other side of the brain. So these areas of the parietal lobe uh, in the back of the brain are are very much affected by these intense practices. And this is what we see over and over again in practices that lead to an experience of oneness uh, as the person gets into these kinds of mystical uh, union experiences, enlightenment experiences, and transformational experiences. The fourth criteria, the four, fourth component, I should say, uh, is a feeling of surrender. Um, and what I mean by that? Well, when people have these experiences, and, and maybe many of you have had such an experience, um, what people frequently describe is they're not making it happen. Uh, it is an experience that is happening to you. Now, you know, you, might be, you may have been striving for it, you may have been engaged in a meditation program for many, many years trying to achieve some kind of enlightenment or something like that, some kind of awakening. Uh, but at some point, the experience kind of takes you over and you allow it to happen. It's you're along for the ride. So this feeling of surrender, um, which, you know, is particularly prominent in the Islamic tradition, but we see this in many different uh, perspectives and from many different practices and individuals. So here is a very interesting description of a sense of surrender from a 48-year-old Catholic woman. She said this. She said, I surrendered everything, including my faith and my salvation, and only for one reason. I loved God so much that I would truly give up everything to be connected with him. I said yes, and in an instant, God returned everything to me transformed. From that day forward, a new relationship exists between uh, between God and me. It is ever-present, no distance, no separation. I am not attached to doctrine, dogmas, or rituals. I see God's action all around me." So this actually is an interesting uh, kind of hybrid description of not only the sense of surrender, but that feeling of oneness. There's no distance, no separation between this person and God, but it was achieved through a sense of surrender. So where does surrender occur in the brain? Well, we talked about the frontal lobes early on as being this area of the brain that uh, we use when we are purposefully doing something, when we're concentrating on something. And the frontal lobes, when we look at meditation practices in general, when you are focusing your attention on your breath, on an object, um, you know, on, a, on a, a phrase or a mantra, then we tend to see increased activity in the frontal lobes. So on these kinds of brain scans, it would be an area of increased red activity. But when people ultimately do have these kinds of intense experiences, and this particular scan is from a study that we did of Islamic prayer, where they feel that sense of surrender, the frontal lobes actually shut down. So again, I I think this is the last time I'll apologize for this. Um, I don't have the pre-scan, which was just their resting scan, but where these arrows were were for a a fair amount of red activity, but now you can see during the, the prayer state, that it's almost all in yellows and greens and there's almost no red at all in that frontal lobe. So the frontal lobe actually started to shut down as the person felt this sense of surrendering oneself to God. And again, to me, this just makes a lot of sense that if the frontal lobe turns on when we are doing something purposeful and, and you know we're trying to do something, then when we surrender that purposefulness, that frontal lobe actually starts to shut down. And that's exactly what we see in these kinds of experiences and these kinds of practices. Now the fifth aspect of these experiences and more directly related to the title of the talk is the transformation. So this to me is also quite fascinating as a, um, you know, as a neuroscientist that we are looking at, you know, not just these experiences, but what these experiences do to somebody. And in fact, you know, going, going back to the, to the term enlightenment, what's also kind of interesting about that is that it's used in two different kinds of contexts. One is, the experience of enlightenment, when you achieve enlightenment, you when you become enlightened, um, but which is the moment that this transformation occurs. But it's also, uh it also has a different term when you are enlightened. So you have had the experience and what happens to the person going forward. They now have a different perspective on everything, as I mentioned from the beginning. So it changes the way Uh, You know, they think about their lives, their jobs, their relationships, and so forth. And this was part of the survey that we did where we asked people the question about, you know, what is actually transformed for you and how is it transformed? Does it actually make things better or worse? You know, what's happening? And I I was really very struck by this table that we put together, again, using these couple thousand people. Um, If you look at this, uh, you know, over fifty percent, and depending on the you know the the particular question we were asking about religiousness and spirituality, uh, up to ninety percent um, felt that their senses of these different terms became better. So their family relationships, you know, fifty uh, percent over you know, almost sixty percent got better. Um, their fear of death, seventy-five percent got better. Um, their sense of health and well-being got better. So you know these. Uh, experiences have an enormous transformational effect. Uh, now everybody's a little bit different so some people you know they did say, well my, my family relations didn't change that much but my sense of spirituality changed a lot. In fact again the sense of spirituality is is over 90 percent so I mean that's uh, really pretty incredible uh, what we're seeing here in terms of the effects that people have. Um, and, and so there's this unbelievable transformation that is a part of all of these experiences. Now You also may notice in this table that there are a percentage of people, although very small—you know, usually a a couple of percent—that said that things got worse. Now, from a neurotheological perspective, this is actually a very interesting thing, a a very interesting finding, and something that is very important for us to begin to look at. Uh, You know, on one hand, these experiences seem quite rosy. You know, everybody seems to do a lot better with these experiences, and they feel that it's really changed their lives for the better. But there are a percentage of people who feel like it hasn't helped them and it actually may hurt them in certain ways. And I think, you know, in terms of the brain itself, we need to understand what those negative experiences are about. What's going on? You know, did their amygdala turn on in such a way that made them feel more negative emotions and feelings of fear, for example, uh, as opposed to feelings of love and compassion and understanding? Um, You know, did they have a very positive experience but they had trouble integrating it into their prevailing belief system. And we see this happen over and over again, uh, where somebody, you know, may have grown up Catholic uh, and, and feels very strongly about their Catholic tradition. And then they have some incredible experience a near-death experience or something like that, that doesn't feel anything like Catholicism to them. And then they don't know what to do. And then they go to their clergy or they go to a family member who kind of, you know, blows them off um, and, uh, you know, makes them feel like, you know, they're, they, something crazy happened to them. so. You know, we need to understand what's going on with the negative side of these experiences as much as we need to understand what's going on with the positive side of these experiences. But part of what is, to me, very important about all of this is, you know, trying to understand what these transformations are about and also exactly, what, you know, how they happen. Uh, and this, to me, is something which is, you know, very very important. Um, oh, excuse me, sorry. Um, that um, that when we think about the transformation itself. Uh, you know, how is it happening? Because uh, when you think about the brain and you think about how it works in general, it tends to work slowly over time. You know, when we go to school to learn about, you know, to become a mathematician or become a scientist or become a philosopher or whatever, it takes many, many years of reading and learning and studying and developing the brain. And over time, you, you learn, at, at your brain changes so that you become an expert in a particular area or particular field. It takes time, many, many years. But these kinds of transformational experiences seem to happen in, you know, literally seconds for some people, uh, minutes for others, but in a very, very short period of time, it changes everything about this person's life. How does that happen? Uh, you know, the short answer is we don't know. So, uh, you know, what to me, there's one of two main possibilities. One is, is that, uh, you know, much like a lot of the video games today that, you know, that these beliefs or these ways of looking at the world existed within us, it's like that extra character or that extra room in the video game that you unlock when you get to a certain point or something like that. Uh, So is it possible that this new way of looking at the world in a very holistic, very uh, compassionate kind of way was always inside of the person and then when they had this experience, it just opened up that doorway and now they look at the world in a completely different way. Or is it that the brain literally rewires itself in some way? And I mean, it's not impossible. I mean, there are millions and trillions and trillions of connections between different neurons. And so if you know, you know, there's, it goes this way a little bit and then suddenly it shifts the other way, um, then you can have a whole different type of experience. But, but then again, why do so many of these experiences turn into the positive? Uh, and I, I think that there, again, these are some fascinating questions for neurotheology to think about. Now, um, you know, I've used this term neurotheology several times and you did hear it in my introduction. So I do want to spend a few moments talking about it just so that everyone understands what it is as a field of study. Uh, I'm very passionate about neurotheology and and everything that I think you've been hearing today, even, even not just from me, but from the other uh, speakers, probably kind of bumps into this uh, notion of neurotheology. So for me, Neurotheology is a unique field of scholarship that seeks to understand the relationship specifically between the brain and theology, but more broadly between the mind and religion. So, you know, I, I think to me, this is a very important point. Um, in fact, let me just jump down a couple to what neuro and theology, you know, how they should be defined very broadly. I think for the term to work, and and believe me, we, we talked about a lot of other, uh, I wrote a book called Principles of Neurotheology, where I spend a fair amount of time just talking about what the right term should have been. Um, it could have been psychospirituality or biotheology or whatever. And, uh, you know, they're all good terms. Um, I think neurotheology in many ways just kind of sounds the most uh, interesting, the coolest. Uh, but um, but I think for it to work as a term, you have to define the neuro and the theology quite broadly for it to work. So we define the neuro side as not just being neuroscience and neuroimaging, but, you know, just Overall biology and medicine; uh, it can include anthropology, all the different ways that we get at sort of the physical aspect of who we are as a person, and uh, and and it can include psychology as well. Although obviously, you know, it's linking the psychology to what's going on in the brain itself, uh, and it can also include things like consciousness, uh, if you will, uh, and uh, how consciousness might arise uh, and uh, how it's connected to the material parts of our brain, uh, and and there are some fascinating uh, issues with all of that. The theology side also, you know, theology is a specific discipline of taking the kind of fundamentals of a given tradition and trying to analyze them. And so we see this a lot in Christian theology and so forth. Um, but but I think theology, you know, we can look at that. We can look at the ways in which we understand concepts of causality and, uh, you know, understand how we read sacred texts and things like that. But we also have to define theology very broadly. So it includes practices like meditation and prayer. It can include different beliefs, different experiences, mystical experiences, enlightenment experiences, all the different aspects that go into what it means for us to be religious or spiritual. And so, um, you know, I I think if you use those two terms very broadly, then neurotheology can work. And of course, you know, it has gotten a lot of attention over the last uh, 10, 20 years. Um, You know, in many ways, it's riding that wave of, you know, there's there's neuroeconomics and, and neuropsychology and neuroethology and so forth. You know, all the different ways that we link our brain with human behaviors, and attitudes. And I think doing that for religion and spirituality is certainly very relevant as well. Um, I want to be clear though that neurotheology to me is also a two-way street. It is not neuroscience looking at religion and spirituality, it is not religion and spirituality looking at neuroscience but it is really the two sides of humanity uh you know the the religious and spiritual on one side and the science and technology on the other uh looking you know helping them to look at each other to help us understand who we are as best as possible so ultimately you know there are a whole range of different aspects of neurotheology from the very esoteric uh to the very practical and so studies can evaluate effects of religion and spirituality on the brain much like what we were just talking about uh, with the brain scans we were looking at there can be you know very practical applications looking at health related effects if you if you pray does it reduce anxiety or depression um, and all the way to you know even more esoteric concepts about you know what exactly you know is going on when we talk about concepts of free will of causality of enlightenment uh, and can all of this information even provide you know some type of new understanding of what enlightenment is and how and even maybe give us some direction in terms of helping people to achieve these kinds of experiences Mm -hmm. and that does lead to uh towards you know towards the end of my talk here um i do want to talk a little bit about this transformational process how do these practices in particular facilitate spiritual experiences and again uh to you know drive home that other point that i mentioned at the beginning we have to combine the science with the spiritual. We have to combine the subjective with the objective, so to speak, Um, but we can start to do that. And uh, we did a a very interesting study, uh, one of the first longitudinal studies, where we took people who had never really been meditators and we set them on a path of meditation. We actually taught them uh, a practice called Kirtan Kriya meditation, which is a very simple mantra-based meditation that you do it for about 12 minutes a day. And uh, uh, these scans, I I finally have a good slide because it didn't actually have the transformation of the slide from one to another. Um, So these uh, four scans here represent the scans from one individual. I I should uh, parenthetically note that with all of the stuff that I have been telling you about these studies and these scans and pointing out these colors, um, there's numbers that underlie all of this. So all of this is quantitative and in the research articles that we do, uh, which I'll, I'll give you some information about looking at them later, um, it's all presented in terms of the quantitative analyses. So you don't just have to take my word for these things, but, um, but we actually have you know, quantitative data that supports all the, the contentions and all the statements that I'm making. So back to these scans. So these are four scans from one individual. The A scan is their very first resting scan, mm-hmm. what their brain looked like basically just coming into our lab. Then we taught them how to do the Kirtan Kriya meditation practice, which again is very easy practice to do and um, we had them do it for the first time, and that was the B scan. Then we send them home and we have them do the practice for about two months and we bring them back. The C scan represents uh, the, the baseline scan, again, the new baseline, so to speak. And then the D scan represents their scan in their final meditation practice. So the A and the C scan to me are the most important things to look at on this slide, because this goes into this notion of transformation. Um, this is the resting brain. This is not while they're meditating. This is what their resting brain looks like. And there were two very important changes that we note on this particular scan. So one of them doesn't have an arrow, but if you look at the top of the scan, um, that's where the frontal lobes are. If you look on the A scan towards the top, there's mostly just yellows and greens, maybe a little dollop of red, but not very much. But if you look at the C scan, you can see that parts of that frontal lobe have become more red, especially some of the central areas there, which are part of the cingulate cortex I mentioned a while back. So the frontal lobe at baseline is more active than it was before by doing this practice. This is a really important finding because there are other studies that have shown, and uh, Dr. Lazar uh, probably pointed out a couple of these because these were from some of her research, that the frontal lobes tend to be larger in those individuals who are doing these kinds of practices compared to those people who have not done those practices. So here we see an actual change in the activity level, which is very comparable to what's going on in terms of the thickness of the cortex. So this all, you know, to me, uh, uh, the analogy of, of a muscle is just very much right on here, that if you lift a lot of weights, the muscle becomes structurally thicker, like the brain, and physically stronger, you can do more with it. And that's what we're seeing here. We're, we're looking at the functional piece here that corresponds also with the structural changes that we see. And interestingly, I mean, we were doing this actually on a more pragmatic level. These were individuals who also were you know, older individuals who had memory problems. And we showed that it improved their memory and their concentration by about 10%. And it correlated with about a 10% improvement of their um, frontal lobe activity. <clears throat> So uh, this to us was very important. And then the other finding that we see is in that thalamus again, that we were talking about earlier. So if you look in this individual at baseline, um, there is a little bit of an asymmetry where that arrow is pointing. One side of the thalamus is a bit more active than the other. But if you look at the C-scan, it looks like it's almost equilibrated. In fact, if anything, the other side may be a little bit more active. And if you actually go to the D-scan, you can see that the other side becomes even more active. So this to us is very interesting and very important because, again, um, if the thalamus is part of that sense of clarity and that part of how we perceive, perceive all of reality together, then we're seeing a shift by doing a very simple meditation, 12 minutes a day for eight weeks. And if we can affect these kinds of changes in that period of time with a very, you know, kind of minimalist uh, approach to meditation, you can imagine what's going on in the brains of nuns and monks and people who are doing these kinds of practices for hours a day for years and years of their life. When we did our study of nuns, um, they had been praying for, you know, 50 years. So what's going on and how does that change their perspectives of reality? Um, you can see the, uh, the incredible power of these practices at transforming and changing the brain. And, and again, part of what we ultimately need to look at is, are we able to change the brain for the positive to make people um, you know, have higher levels of cognition, a greater sense of wisdom, a greater sense of love and compassion for other people? Because unfortunately, these practices can also go awry. And, uh, you know, various meditations and rituals um, can be used for, you know, if it, if it winds up creating a very small, cohesive group, they can use these same kinds of rituals to produce cults and, and very negative outward behaviors. Um, so, we, we you know, this is for neurotheology to look at, which is where do we see the positive versus the negative side of these kinds of practices. So, So in the end, um, uh, hopefully you have learned a great deal about these transformational experiences and what enlightenment ultimately can do for people. These kinds of experiences have a tremendous impact, uh, both on the brain as well as on the person. Um, The experiences transform their views of reality, their sense of relationships, their sense of uh, what kind of job they should do and how they should do it their spiritual perspectives, their scientific perspectives. Um, You know, every aspect of how they think about the world uh, literally can change. So, you know, it really shows how important these experiences are in humanity. And it helps us to understand by looking at the biology, the kind of universal qualities of these experiences. And that to me, in many ways, may be the most uh, important take home and perhaps the most hopeful take home message of this talk which is that when we look at these experiences, um, you know, it seems to me that anyone can have these experiences and that everyone can have these experiences. And, and that was what was so heartening to me as I read through these you know, couple thousand descriptions of these experiences. You know, these are not for the Buddhas of the world and the Gandhis of the world uh, and the Mother Teresa's of the world. These are for everyone. Um, You know, some of my favorite descriptions, one of my favorite descriptions of all was like was like a truck driver who was just driving his truck down the road and suddenly saw like this unifying force of everything and saw the energy and everything. You know, they weren't trying to have these experiences. They weren't particularly religious or spiritual. And yet they did have them. And of course, a lot of people are striving for them and are able to have them as well. Uh, And so, you know, to me. Uh, you know there's never a guarantee that people can have them. That's the one downside of them, uh, which is that um you know we, we we can't find an absolute way to make them happen., uh, but we do know that when people in general start to pursue these kinds of spiritual questions and these spiritual paths, uh, that um, that hopefully, you know all, every one of us can find these kinds of experiences in one way or another. but i but I think again, to me, the hopeful part is is that based on the evidence that we have, And again, when you even just think about how our brains are wired and operate, uh, for the most part, we all have a frontal lobe, we all have a temporal lobe, we all have a limbic system, and they all more or less work the same way. So it makes sense that everyone should be able to have these kinds of experiences. So for those of you who are interested in exploring some of my research further, uh, again, uh, a lot of what I talked about today came out of our book called How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. And so I'd love to encourage you to do that. And also a book I wrote called Neurotheology, which summarizes a lot of what the field of neurotheology is currently about, uh, how we can start to think about new studies and the questions that we can answer and, you know, questions we can ask and then how we try to find the answers. Uh, But there are a lot of fascinating ideas and possibilities as we go forward. And lastly, I do want to just leave you with my uh, website. So for anyone who is interested, it's just Andrew Newberg, newber uh, And on there, you can find some of the, you know, the more specific uh, pieces of data from the, uh, about the articles that we did, both in terms of the survey data, uh, as well as a lot of the brain scan studies. And you can also keep in touch with some of the other information uh, as we write uh, new articles and new books and so forth on these topics. Um, as much as we have learned, as much as I've been able to share with you in this hour, uh, we're really just scratching the surface, and there is so much more for us to learn and to think about, both in terms of what's going on in the brain and not just areas of the brain's activity, but different neurotransmitters and different uh, networks in the brain. Uh, there's all the practical applications of this, there's the philosophical and the theological, there's applying these kinds of questions to all the different traditions. Um, so, there is just a ton of work for all of us to do, and uh, I hope that uh, I've uh, at least made a number of you interested in the same topics and the same questions as I have. So thank you very much. And uh, I guess we'll be taking a little break and uh, I'll be back for some questions. So thank you.
0: Excellent presentation. Um, We'll take a five minute break now and then we'll come back for um, about 20 or 30 minutes Q&A. Anybody, if you've got any questions, just type them into the chat bar and we'll choose a selection to, to ask Dr. Newberg. And Dr. Newberg, if you'd like to turn off your um, camera during the break, you have the option to do that. If you see the buttons on the screen, Um, so see you guys soon. Welcome back. Um, So yeah, again, thanks so much for that presentation. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Okay, great. So, as a first question, um, I'd love to ask. Okay, so if you were, if you were working with somebody and you were giving the task of Helping this person to have one of these experiences, like to have a spiritual experience, and you only had a week to um, for it for it to happen. How would you approach coaching that person through that experience?
1: Well, you know, we we do look uh, and we actually discuss this a little bit. Um, maybe not within you know for a week, <laughs> um, but we do talk about it and how enlightenment changes your brain. Um, you know, what are some of the things that people can do in order to get into these experiences? And uh, uh, I think there's a couple of important pieces to this. One is is that a person does have to make uh, a certain degree of preparation for it. And, and I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a long term, a, a lot of time to do it, um, but they, they need to be open to the possibility of, of a transformation. Um, so you know, if somebody says, no, you know, there's no way I'm going to ever do this, Um, then it's gonna be much harder for them to achieve some kind of uh, awakening or enlightenment. Um, So I think part of it is that people have to feel like they are uh, beginning to open themselves up to that possibility uh, that they, you know, so there there needs to be kind of an awareness that it's something that they want and that they are uh, hoping to achieve. Then uh, another really important part, and and this is where um, it's important to kind of individualize it as well as standardize it, uh, is to find a practice or a ritual or some combination of practices and rituals that a person can do. We actually did, uh, you know, I don't know if this is where your question was coming from, but we actually did a study that was kind of like this, where we sent people to a retreat program um, that was based on the uh, spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. And there's a retreat center out of the Phil- outside of the Philadelphia area where I live and where our university is. And we would scan people and then we would send them for a week to this retreat center. And in that week, they spend a lot of time in self reflection, in meditation, in silence. So, you know, now it's prescribed in the sense that, you know, everybody kind of does the same basic thing. And it can be a very effective, to, you know, approach to do. But the reason I say that it also needs to be individualized is that each person does need to kind of find their own path. And, and for example, uh, with the exercises of St. Ignatius since it is developed out of the Jesuit, you know, Christian tradition. We did have a couple of people who were interested in the study who were Jewish, for example, and I said, well, you know, are you going to be okay with the fact that there's kind of Christian undertones to this? And they decided not to participate, which I think was a smart thing, um, you know, because, you know, you still have to tailor it to where you are and where your beliefs are. So, uh, you know, whether and whether that is doing something with Buddhism, Hindu, you know, a tradition that you come from, a tradition that you want to go to. Um, but it, it's finding those kinds of rituals and really immerse. I mean, again, part of an answer to your question is that these people were very immersed in these practices and many of them did feel, uh, you know, transformed to some degree. I don't think, you know, any of them had kind of a true enlightenment experience. You know, no one came back and said, you know, wow, you know, like I, I, I'm different now. Although everyone felt that they had been changed by it, um, it was sort of more of the slow process as opposed to that kind of mystical moment. Um, But again, I mean, that's that's also what you know. We know you know thousands and thousands of monks and nuns who spend you know many many years in meditation and never achieve enlightenment. So uh, you know it can it can take a long long time. But anyway, um, the last piece of it is ultimately. Uh, trying to find a way of kind of releasing oneself and surrendering and letting go. And uh, I think when people can kind of do that combination of preparing, finding the right rituals and then kind of do, engaging them, but then finding a way to let go, that gives you your best uh, your best chance of having that experience. But again, there, there's certainly no one size fits all, and there's no way to ever guarantee that it will happen for any given individual.
0: Okay, very interesting. night. Also curious to ask, and maybe you've had one, maybe you haven't, but have you had uh, many of these experiences yourself? And if so, maybe if you could tell us about your first time, or um, maybe your most profound spiritual experience. And if you don't wanna share this, totally fine, we can move on to the next question too, no worries. Well, well, thank you, thank
1: you for that understanding. Uh, You know, I I guess as someone in this field and doing all this neurotheology, that's a question that I always expect to get, and and I'm not, you know, it's totally fine. Um, yeah, in fact, actually, I do talk a little bit about my own personal experiences in How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain. And just um, sort of, you know, briefly uh, stated, um, you know, a lot of how and it's kind of also included in the whole discussion of how I got into this uh, topic in the first place, which is that when I was growing up, um, I, I was always very sort of, uh, I don't know if disturbed is the right word or concerned. But it bothered me that there were different religions and different political parties. And, you know, I sort of felt like, well, if we're all looking at the same world, how come we're not all coming together with the same conclusion? And so I said, well, you know, to me, the fundamental question is, well, how do we know? And everybody seems so sure of themselves um, that everybody was right. So I said, well, how do we know what's real? You know, how do we actually figure out what's real? And um, and I said, well, it, you know, it must start with the brain because that that's the part of that's the organ of our Selves that uh, helps us to take in all this information and process it and to figure it out. So I started to look at the brain and what we knew about how the brain worked. But over time, I realized that there were certain limitations to what the science could tell us that especially when it came to things like our own subjective experiences of the world and consciousness. Um, so I started to look at that. I started to look at philosophical ideas uh, and different spiritual traditions, Buddhism and Hindu and so forth, and, and theology and philosophy. Uh, so all of this was kind of swirling around in my head um, as I tried to explore the question of you know what was real, and um, uh, I, I began to take this kind of philosophical approach, which I guess I later found out was uh, some was somewhat similar to uh, what Descartes had done, uh, which made me feel like I was at least on the right track. Um, and um, and and so basically, what I kind of kept doing with my own way of thinking, it became very contemplative, and I said, well, you know, if there's anything that I'm not sure about. Uh, I won't say it's wrong. I'm just going to say I don't know, and and so I would say you know I, I doubt it. You know it's it's it, it goes into this realm of doubt and, and realm of uncertainty, and uh, and over time you know more and more stuff went into this realm of doubt. The, the notions of of causality and philosophy and science and you know everything kind of went into you know even even my own sense of self and so forth, and um, and finally in between my college and medical school, uh, I had a summer where I said you know I really feel like I got to answer this this issue. Um, And so I spent that whole summer really in just kind of a deep contemplative period. And um, the the experience that I had to now more directly answer your question um, was an experience that I sometimes refer to as infinite doubt. Um, What I kind of came to was that uh, was sort of an infinite regressive doubt. It was that there was nothing that could ever be known. And uh, you know, on one hand, when I have you know described this to some of my friends and, and colleagues uh, from time to time, they said, "Well, that must have been the worst experience you could have ever had." Here, you were trying to find an answer, and you came to the notion that you'll never have an answer. And I said, "Well, you know, I understand why why you're saying that, but for me, it was actually one of the most uh, peaceful, most um, uh, sort of freeing experiences that I ever had." And and there were some interesting characteristics of it because. Um, within this infinite doubt, um, there was no differentiation of. I mean, everything was possible. Uh, everything was impossible. Everything was one. There was no, you know, one way of looking at things. So, so some of these uh, things that we've later found, you know, is is a part of a lot of these experience. That sense of uh, oneness, unity. Uh, certainly, there was no sense of ego self that was guiding this. So I it was along for the ride, so to speak, um, and. Uh, and uh, and and certainly, you know, it was an incredibly intense experience because I had never experienced anything like this before. Um, so that, to me, was was my you know main experience that I had. And um, and from that point, over the last thirty years or so, you know, I keep kind of going back to that experience and seeing what can come from that. And That's been part of what I do. It's part of what has led me into the whole field of neurotheology. And uh, I mean, I haven't figured it out yet, um, and as I always uh, jokingly say, if I ever do, I will make sure I let everyone know. But, um, uh, but you know, it was that experience that also kind of propelled me to want to understand what other experiences were like that people were describing and see where they were similar or different from the one that I had, so that I could understand my own experience. And uh, and again, you know, that, that has been really, uh, you know, to me, neurotheology is, is my kind of combined Scientific and spiritual path towards understanding the nature of reality, the nature of this experience that I that I personally had, and uh, and trying to see you know from that experience what we can ultimately learn and know about the world. So uh, that's really where I've been uh, going and coming from, and um, uh, and I uh, continue to explore it, and uh, hopefully someday I'll figure it out.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Well. In our in our pre-call there a couple of days ago, I was asking you about you know taking this path. It must have been quite risky from an academic point of view because um, there's no guarantees and it, you know for obvious reasons. Um, and what you told me was that you can never get in trouble if you always lead with questions or if you if you never claim to have answers and you you've only got questions, you know and the from what you've told me now about this sort of realization of infinite doubt i can see maybe that why that where that may, maybe came about you know
1: yeah i mean it, it, it and to me it's the it's the center of, of my life and the center of neurotheology it, it's it's uh, i refer to it as a passion for inquiry i mean it's just that we should always be asking those questions and you're absolutely right I and mean, that's how i wound up uh you know heading towards that infinite doubt of just keep pushing the questions and um and, and again i mean you know as much as of all the things that i talked about today um you know they're all within that light you know i mean like like we this is what we've learned um this is interesting but there's always another question there's always you know well what does this mean what does that mean how does it how does it help us to interpret these experiences where, where do we take it uh where can we go and um and, and, and ultimately how can it help us so um but yeah i mean it's you know to me uh, I've, been, I've been very fortunate and, uh, and been able to do a lot of very, you know, traditional stuff, which continues to kind of fuel my ability to do some of the, uh, the, the work that I have been doing in neurotheology and, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, as you said, I mean, I, you know, I, I try to maintain always asking those questions. It's hard to get in trouble when you keep asking the questions. And then when you do offer, well, here's some information, uh, at least an answer that we have for the moment. Um, that's what it is. It's an answer we have for the moment. And, um, uh, and there's always going to be more information and more answers and more, and then more questions. And so it just kind of keeps going and going, but that to me is part of what makes it exciting and interesting. Uh, hopefully it'll keep me busy for the next 30 years and, uh, um, and, and hopefully it'll keep me out of trouble.
0: <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. So next question is from Gill. Um, Gail asks, how do you describe spirituality versus religion in your definitions? And then there's, there's a couple more actually as well. So she also asks, what do you think about the uni- unilateral changes and alterations in the scans or were they just cut dependent? And finally, when speaking of consciousness, have you done any work with the brain consciousness and body consciousness? She, she's a body worker, I'm assuming, in some kind of psych- psychotherapeutic work. And among other things and memories that come up in body work, some memories and trauma come up as well.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, well, you're probably going to have to remind me of this, each of the questions, but let me start with the first one, because um, it is one of my favorite ones. In in a book that I wrote called Principles of Neurotheology, the whole first part of it and the whole first piece of, of neurotheology is definitions. Um, and, uh, you know, as an academic person um, or who likes academic stuff, uh, I find that the definition piece really exciting and interesting, even though I guess in some sense it's a little bit stale at times. But, um, but you know... Uh, there's some fascinating things that come up when we ask the question about definitions. Um, and first of all, it's not just religious versus spirituality, but it's brain versus mind versus soul versus God versus, you know, so all of these terms have to be defined. And uh, how do we define them? You know, and who should define them? Um, so, you know, should we have a bunch of religious people define them? Should we have a bunch of theologians, a bunch of anthropologists, a bunch of philosophers, a bunch of neuroscientists? Uh, they're all going to come up with different definitions. And in fact, um, that's the exercise that I do is I write, you know, religiousness up on the board and spirituality up on the board and, and with the, whatever group I'm working with. And I say, you guys tell me, you know, what you think each of these are. And and I love watching the back and forth. They go, oh, well, you know, uh, spirituality is the individual and religion is the group. And, and somebody says, yeah, but I'm religious and I do it in my own house and I'm totally an individual. And, and somebody says, you know, I'm spiritual, but I love meditating with the group, you know. And, And so you get a lot of back and forth, Um, uh, you know, maybe the thing that differentiates spirituality from religiousness the most um, is just that religion tends to be defined by a group of people. Uh, But again, I mean, you know, so is spiritual, you know, so are different spiritual uh, traditions too. So, um, you know, certainly there's a lot of overlap. Uh, Everyone sort of has their own definitions and that's important too. Uh, and, and much like the survey studies that we're doing, uh, what we're going to be starting to do is try to get a little bit more of how people define these different terms. Because even if you go to a, you know, a, a church and you look at the same hundred people um, and you ask each of them, you know, what is God in your view, you're going to get all different kinds of answers. So, um, you know, the, how we define these terms to me is is a very exciting part of, of trying to understand neurotheology. So, but I, I, it's a really important question. I appreciate that one. Um if, if I understood the second part of the question, uh, I think she she was the 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 question was about sort of the different sides of the brain. The question I, was, uh,
0: what, what do you think about the unilateral changes and alterations in the scans, or yeah. were these just cut dependent?
1: Yeah. So we have been looking at this issue about you know what areas of the brain are turned on, turned off. Um, There, you know, on on one hand, there are differentiations between the two hemispheres of the brain, and sometimes we are seeing laterality changes. Uh, Other times we don't. Um, Sometimes we can attribute those to the different uh, aspects of the brain. For example, (laughs) when it comes to the parietal lobe, there's some evidence to support that the left side of the parietal lobe is a little bit more about self other, whereas the right side is a little bit more about spatial relations. So that theoretically, then, if you have a decrease in the left side, you lose self, other, um, and you feel you know connected to God, for example, or connected to the universe. Uh, but if you lose your right side, it's the feeling of oneness of all things. And of course, if you do both, then you lose yourself and become one with all things. You know, so so there's there's subtle differences depending on the circumstance. And then you do get into different practices that are more uh, verbally based, which tends to be more left hemisphere. Um, and, uh, you know, so we're, we're looking into that, but that is, it's an interesting issue. And it's something for us to think about. In fact, um, there was a really fascinating study uh, on patients with Parkinson's disease, which can, you know, affect one side or the other or both. And they found that when it, and I, I apologize, I, uh, off the top of my head now, I, I don't want to quote it because I don't remember which side was which, but um, when one side was down, people tended to become less religious than when the other side was down. Um, so there's something about the laterality of the brain, but uh, but we don't fully know we're we're working on that, and we're trying to understand that. Um And then I think the last question, actually I'm remembering them um, uh, was about the body, uh, you know, consciousness in the body. And, you know, as an integrated medicine doctor, uh, we certainly understand the relationship between the brain and the body. Uh, and um, in fact, um, this may be another real important take home message from all of the stuff I've been saying. Uh, you know, some, there isn't one God. You know, spiritual part of the brain. There isn't one part of the brain that lights up when we hit enlightenment or anything like that. Uh, it's m- almost all the different parts of our brain. You know, our language, our emotions, our thoughts, and so forth. And again, the brain, as as, as uh, the question is asking, is deeply connected with the body. And so, when we think things, when we feel things up in the brain, um, they're translated to the body. And of course, things that are felt in the body are translated back up to the brain and our, you know, where exactly consciousness is in all of this, who knows, you know, so, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that it is important for us to think about all these different aspects about how our brain is operating and how the different sides of our brain, different parts of our brain, different parts of our body are all interacting with each other. And that is to me, a, a real important area of future work in, in neurobiology.
0: 100%, it was a great, great series of questions. Um, Curious to ask you now as well. Given all the work that you've done, what's your basic view on consciousness? Do you believe that the brain generates consciousness? Do you think it's like a, it's like transmitting consciousness? Like, what, what, what's your take on that?
1: uh well, this, this hopefully won't come as a shock to anyone listening. Um, I don't know. <laughs> this is my answer. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I could see it. You know. We, uh, my my late colleague Jean DeQuillen and I wrote a, a a paper many many years ago, about thirty years ago, called Consciousness in the Machine. And um, maybe this is my best answer, but you know, to me, it seems like you have sort of two basic possibilities. You have sort of the material, you know, you start with the material world and the brain, and somehow you have to explain the generation of consciousness, which we haven't done yet. You know, so is it possible? You know, maybe. Um, but uh, you know we haven't been able to figure that out yet, and maybe you know people talk about emergent properties and things like that. So uh, you know I don't want to say that we'll never do it, but um, uh, that seems you know that that's the leap that needs to be made. Uh, you could start with kind of consciousness as the you know the fundamental stuff of the universe, and then you have to somehow explain what the material where the material world comes from, um, and and that's a, a leap that we haven't been able to figure out or make. So, um, you know, those are the two ways of sort of basically thinking about it. And um, what we concluded, and I don't know, you know, if this is a valid point or not, but I, you know, there, it makes a certain degree of sense, um, is that maybe, you know, consciousness and, and matter are sort of two ways of looking at the same thing. It's a little bit of the, the quantum analogy. And I mean that as an analogy, not that it's based on quantum mechanics, although there's other people who are looking at that, um, but just that, you know, it, depend, it may depend a little bit on how you look at it. You know, like if you have somebody focusing on consciousness, you know, or their own consciousness or being consciousness of something and you do a brain scan, well, you will find changes in the brain, um, but whether or not that's generating the experience of consciousness or receiving the experience of consciousness, um, these are things that, that you know, at the moment, we just don't know. Now, someday we may be able to figure that out. Although again, you know, this is part of what drove me into the whole uh, infinite doubt thing, which is that, um, you know how do you? Uh, we're caught within our own consciousness. You know we're 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 living out of our own consciousness, and so our science, our computers, everything that we think about is um, is coming out of that in some way. And I don't mean physically. You know I don't mean the physical manifestation of it, but it's just that we're trapped within our own consciousness. So um, it's very hard to know if anything that we're experiencing in the world is just our own experience of it, or is really real. And this gets back to that fundamental question. So. Uh, that's a very long-winded answer to the short answer of I don't know but um, uh, but you know it's a fantastic question and, and obviously it's it's a very central one and, and one that neurotheology should continue to look at and to explore I mean one of the the interesting pieces to this is you know can we take people like monks and nuns and so forth who can manipulate their consciousness in certain ways and and use them as the ability to you know try to explore these questions um, so you know that that may be a a window into trying to figure that out
0: very cool very cool okay so next question from ruth has anybody ever tried reverse research and that is basically stimulating areas of the brain and seeing if this has an effect on these spiritual experiences
1: yeah so um there's actually a a, a fairly well-known uh batch of of studies i guess if you will um uh, there was a guy named michael persinger who i think has passed away but uh, he had what was called the God helmet, um, where you would put on this helmet and it would emit different um, uh, radio frequencies into the brain or magnetic frequencies into the brain. Um, in more clinical uh, scenarios, there is now something called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which we know can be used to sort of reduce depression or anxiety in people by stimulating or, or inhibiting certain parts of the brain. Um, so, you know, according to Persinger's claim that he could help to induce these different experiences by emitting these different uh, radio frequencies. And of course, there's the more obvious um, way of looking at this through, you know, psychedelic compounds, which, you know, you take a drug and it stimulates these experiences. So there are a lot of ways of stimulating these experiences. And and it is a very important area of neurotheological research, I think, going forward, which is to look at all the different ways in which uh, we can try to stimulate the brain through meditation, prayer, through psychedelics, through uh you know different electromagnetic waves and things like that, and and see you know what we are able to achieve and what we're not able to achieve. I mean one of the concerns I had with Persinger's work was that um you know even though he claimed to be able to elicit an experience of a sensed presence uh and and sort of a little bit of a feeling of oneness it did not seem that they had the same sort of thorough you know uh fullness and richness of the experiences that people talk about. So um, you know, maybe it can help to elicit a certain part of those experiences, but it, whether or not it can elicit an entire experience that's spiritual like that, um, you know, I don't know. But uh, drug-induced experiences with uh, compounds like psilocybin or LSD uh, often are described as very spiritual experiences, but, um, and, you know, one of the good things about them is that we know what they're made of, they're, like we know what they do in the brain, they affect the serotonin system in particular. So, um, you know that may be something for us to be able to um, to look at and try to uh, understand more specifically. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, I think it's a very valid point, and it is something that we have been looking at, and myself and some of my colleagues have been looking at in more and more detail.
0: Very interesting. Okay, so we've got one here from Philip. Um, you've explained the practice, the effects on the brain, and the reactions of practitioners related to enlightenment. But what is the intrinsic experience in other words what is the nature of pure spirituality
1: well you know uh this gets back to the point i was trying to make about you know learning about the subjective nature of the experience i mean part of the problem even in what we did with the surveys i mean we got at it probably closer than most other people have but it's still you never know exactly what is being experienced by the person themselves and so they are deeply personal uh, very intrinsic experiences for each person and then ultimately and of course the, you know well this is like one of the jokes that i always say you know everybody says that they're indescribable experiences but let me tell you about it um you know so uh you know as as ineffable as they are um you know we try and so we you know then people say well you know it was a powerful feeling of love or it was a feeling of energy it was a, a feeling of a force it was a feeling of god um, and uh, and then the question that I have is, well, so when people say, I felt a force, I felt God, I felt energy, um, are those fundamentally the same experiences that people are just using different words to describe, or are they actually different experiences? You know, is there a continuum of these experiences? And so sometimes people really do feel energy, whereas other times people really do feel love, um, and and that those are two fundamentally different experiences. Um I don't know. I mean, I, I my guess is that some, some, you know, especially when they're really discrepant in terms of their descriptions, um, that they are probably different experiences. But um, but we don't know that yet. Um, and and it is, but it is. I mean, there's a fundamental challenge of, and this gets again back to my infinite doubt piece, which is, uh, you, you know, one never, I, I can never know what your experience is. I mean, I just I have no way of experiencing what you experience, and so I always just have to take you at your word. Uh, and your descriptions for what you know you're saying about your experience um, and of course by the same token you can never know my experience and um, and so you know how do we bridge those gaps and, and again it's a massive challenge for all of cognitive neuroscience and all of philosophy to really to engage those kinds of uh, questions but um, but they are at the core of, of the problem.
0: Very interesting now your your amount of questions Dr. Newberg um, I'm curious to ask what questions are you most interested in exploring in this field going forward like what's most exciting you right now like what are you looking forward to to exploring
1: well i mean a lot of the questions that have already been asked me are key questions that i you know in, in my own personal philosophy uh you know th- that that notion of reality and, and how we come to know it—that that is the fundamental question um from the perspective of neurotheology um uh, I, I alluded to this a few moments ago i think part of um, Part of what i'm excited about is trying to see how these concepts can be applied to all the different traditions and so we wrote a book actually called the rabbi's brain that looked at uh, judaism in the context of neurotheology and i'm currently working with with a nun uh and uh and uh and a uh theolo- theolo- theology scholar i'm sorry uh and uh and so we're working on a, a treatment with regard to uh, catholicism I, i'm working with a colleague in uh, Egypt. We're looking at Islamic uh, neurotheology. Um, uh, you know. So I'm, I'm hoping to be able to bring this to all the different traditions. That to me is, is another new area of uh, work that I'm excited about. And then from the brain perspective, um, we are trying to get more and more down to not just the areas of the brain that are active, but some of the neurotransmitter systems like serotonin related to the psychedelics and so forth. Um, so we've been doing some studies looking at serotonin and dopamine um but uh, but again you know ultimately the fundamental question is still what's the nature of reality and how do we know what it is and uh so that that's the the piece that will always be at the at the center of what i'm doing
0: definitely well i think that's a that's a great point to end on um before we go um your website uh, www. Uh, andrewnewberg.com it's there there on the slide Um, is there anywhere else you'd recommend people to go online or any kind of final parting advice you'd give people after this talk
1: well certainly uh, that website really has most of the research articles and information on the books and um, uh, there's also a way to contact me um, so uh, if people are interested in in, uh, asking some more questions or engaging the topic more um, feel free to to reach out and uh, uh, hopefully I was just able to generate a lot of personal interest and help people to explore their own experiences and their own ways of thinking about things. And hopefully this gives people some some new uh, ways of thinking about the experiences that they've had and, and trying to understand how to incorporate that uh, into their lives. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, I, I think to me, one of the big take home messages uh, to leave people with is something that I said a little earlier, you know, we we all have these intrinsic experiences. And I think what this data ultimately shows us is that, you know, all of us are kind of in the same boat. We all have a brain that's, you know, incredibly finite, limited, fallible, and it's looking at an infinite universe and trying to make some sense out of it. So it is not a surprise that we come to different conclusions and that instead of re-rating and and, uh, and, and being negative and, uh, and sort of uh you know denigrating people who have different perspectives than us uh maybe to look at this data and try to understand how and why we each come to our different perspectives and maybe try to find ways of supporting each other and being more compassionate and understanding about those who have come to conclusions that are different from us because uh we're ultimately all in that same same uh boat of infinite doubt and uh and we're all just trying to figure it out and uh Maybe if we all work together, we'll 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 do a better job of getting to those answers, rather than if we're all trying to tear each other down.
0: Very true, very true. Well, Dr. Nieberg, it's been this has been a fascinating presentation. Thank you so much. Um, thank you to everybody that spent their Sunday like learning about these subjects. Um, it's just it's it's a credit to you all. Um, thank you to Sinead for all the customer support, and I hope to see you all at a future future event at some point, whenever this uh, this lockdown. COVID suggestion ends. So thanks again, everybody. And see you soon. This episode is brought to you by the Weekend University's Day on Human Nature online conference, taking place on Sunday, December nineteenth, twenty 2021. This will be a full day of interactive talks with leading psychologists, professors, and neuroscientists exploring the hidden forces that drive human behaviour. In the first talk, Dr. Graham Music will discuss the surprising links between attachment patterns, neurobiology and altruism, and how you can use these insights to create more well-being in day-to-day life. The second lecture from Cambridge neuroscientist Dr. Hannah Critchlow will explore what the latest neuroscience research reveals about how much free will we really have and what you can do to consciously shape a better future both for yourself and the wider world. And the final talk will be from Dr. Nancy Segal, who will speak on how the latest research in twin studies might finally help us resolve the nature versus nurture debate. By attending live, you can interact with world-class speakers and leading academics in real time, get your questions answered in the Q&A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference, and get lifetime access to the recordings and all available materials from the sessions. Additionally, the Weekend University guarantees an excellent learning experience. Therefore, if you attend and aren't fully satisfied with your experience, you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash human nature 2021. That's bit.ly forward slash human nature 2021 and use the discount code POD when registering. That's P-O-D when registering, all one word. You can also find the link and the discount code in the show notes for this episode.